0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show here today. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, no, it's, it's a you. pleasure to be here. Yeah, tell, tell our audience a little bit about who you are and, and, um, and what kind of company you are.
1: Yeah, so uh, my name is Montana Butch and uh, the company is called Spotivity. Mm-hmm. It's an after-school marketplace venture that looks to pair kids and parents with activities that meet their needs after school. Cool.
0: Makes sense. And where did this idea come from?
1: It comes from my history here in Chicago. Born and bred here, grew up near Cabrini Green mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s, and uh, I fell into a, a rather random a sport, and that sport, I uh, was a rower, led to tremendous opportunities uh, educationally and professionally as I got older, and that was never part of my goal when I was a teenager. I just wanted to participate in good activities, and I didn't realize the benefit that that one would have on me in my life. Looking to play it forward, I brought that background here back to Chicago after I wrote at Oxford to bring the sport and mentoring to inner city kids on the south and west side. And uh, that was extremely fulfilling. I did that for 11 years, I ended up with uh, a big boathouse on the south branch of the Chicago River thanks to uh, Mayor Emanuel a few years ago. and. I wanted to get out of that space and impact a greater number of uh, individuals uh, on a macro level and not just here in Chicago and nationally and internationally as well with the same concept that decisions made when you're a young person have tremendous impact long term and not everyone's gonna to wanna to be a rower, not everyone's gonna to wanna to be an athlete, they're all gonna to wanna to do something. And so Spotivity was envisioned as a very accessible tool to find activities after school that matter to the individual that can provide potential long-term change. And so that's where you know the background comes from, moving into an incubator, using my business school background and my experience as a nonprofit leader to then tunnel vision into this question of how can I impact more people.
0: Makes sense, I mean, if you. If you think about what you just described, right, I mean, you're building a business today, right? It's a platform, essentially, it's an app and it's a platform, it's a web based tool. You couldn't have imagined that three to five years ago. maybe you know, like 10 years ago, this couldn't be possible, right? No,
1: it, it, it couldn't have. I mean, it's a little bit surreal to me. I mean, I just got lucky when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. right? I happened to go to a school that offered this. And I think that's probably a common story for a lot of kids and parents, right? You just roll the dice, hopefully you find what it is you might be passionate about and uh, and you move on and you're limited by your parental network, your school network, maybe your church network. But beyond that, you're, you're kind of limited. The, advent of Google changed a lot of that. Mm -hmm. You can go and you can Google anything and so that provides uh, an opportunity for intrepid kids and parents uh, to go maybe further afield. When I started the Chicago Training Center in 2006, seven, you know, kids aren't, especially on the inner city, looking for rowing programs. So Mm -hmm. even if they were looking through Google, they never would have found us, right? That's not their thing. And that's probably a similar story across the board. And uh, with the ubiquity now of cell phone usage, uh, the ubiquity of social media, there's an environment now that didn't exist even then Mm -hmm. where there's kind of a network to be tapped into. There's a marketplace to be created. There is uh, a platform that works well to make sense of all that activity mm-hmm. that achieves the bigger goal, which is helping kids and or parents you know, find things that matter. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of tapping into that with my background of 11 years of running you know, a rather successful nonprofit to say, okay, how can we do this and be ubiquitous such that it helps the entire demographic, the 13 to 18 age range
0: makes sense so you know when you talk about like how the technology has enabled you to do something that you couldn't have done you know three five years ago Mm -hmm. and essentially your goal is to go impact the whole world essentially with this platform that you're building there's so much that happens right with the the arrival of technology Mm -hmm. what are some of the recommendations that you have as an entrepreneur who might be running a small shop which Mm -hmm. you described in your platform as an agency that's running maybe a local Taekwondo, you know, store or something like that, or it could be a bigger organization that's actually, that has some impa- mm-hmm. you know, that can have a much bigger impact on a larger scale. How are things that can be achieved today using technology?
1: Yeah, I think the um, first thing to touch on
0: mm-hmm.
1: is that, you know, the tenets of leadership work across the board irrespective of how big your agency is, irrespective of how influential you are or you think you are. I think the tenets of leadership are more or less universal. And I say that because in order to do anything, you need to have a certain amount of humility knowing that it's, more than likely, probably 100% correct, that you don't know everything Mm -hmm. and that you're not an expert in everything that you ultimately need to be an expert in for a venture to work. So what that ultimately means is there's always going to be gaps. Mm -hmm. In my case, I'm not a technical founder and I have an idea of what I want this tool to achieve. That's a very clear vision of what the goals ought to be to get there. I know how to get the ball rolling and I know how to envision and translate that vision to other people, but I don't have the technical chops to build the tool. Mm-hmm. right? And so in my case, I needed to find a development shop that was willing to come on and work as a partner, mm-hmm. which means I give up a certain amount of equity, of course, but in turn, it has them have certain amount of skin in the game, which in turn allows me to better use my investors' money, but also have a better end product mm-hmm. while I'm educating myself in the process. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that example was to be a leader is to know that I don't know everything and that that's okay and that I need to work with as many people as possible to fill those knowledge gaps. And for people that are technical founders, they might not have that technical need, but they might have other needs that are no less important. They might not know how to market. They might not know how to create a pricing strategy. They might not know things that revolve around privacy concerns. Like there's a whole host of things that people won't know. And the good leader, I think, will go out and seek people to help fill those gaps and, Hopefully, you know, in, in my case, I've done a good job of that. The investors obviously think that I have because I, I'm getting investment and that's a good thing, but I need to continue on that pathway because there'll never be a situation where I know everything.
0: Yeah, obviously you said you built a very successful nonprofit and you are running it for 11 years. What are some of the life lessons you learned from that organization, building that organization that you are able to apply today in building a for-profit?
1: Immediate example that comes to mind, and you know, I term it and a lot of people talk about it as well, as kind of the hustle. Mm-hmm. And part of running an an agency and and, and founding something with your own vision in mind is that you have to embrace and understand what that means, what the hustle ultimately means. And part of it is gap filling. But for me, one of the important lessons I learned and is more on the marketing side of things is that if you have a good story to tell and you have the, the corresponding visuals that play well and the medium that you're looking to, to impact. You know, written word is different than video for obvious reasons. Reporters and media, they're your friend. They're somewhat hard to access at times. Their ability to, to give up their time is limited. And so I quickly learned that if you position something where you're solving their problem and you're basically packaging something for them that all they have to do is rubber stamp and complete and you know carry across the finish line, but you've done the majority of the work, that makes not only their job way easier, but it helps you create a better friend in that media person that then has a huge downstream series of positive consequences. For you. And that's how we were able to get into the New York Times, while we had numerous articles and local papers here at Chicago Sun-Times and Tribune, ultimately led to CBS Nightly News. All of that wasn't by accident. You know, it wasn't just happenstance that I got a phone call saying, Would you like to be featured in CBS Nightly News? It was because there was this litany of historically relevant information in various media outlets that at each pass solved the problem for that reporter that in turn got a piece published. And so that's just one example of Understanding the hustle is understanding what are the needs of the other players and how can you position something that you're solving their problem, which in turn ultimately helps solve your problem, and then it just becomes a cycle.
0: Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about the platform that you built, you, know, you, had, you said it was a double market. How did you describe that?
1: Yeah, we call it a double-sided marketplace, mm-hmm. and if you want to get even more technical, it has a double bottom line. Mm-hmm. So, double-sided marketplace. Think of it as open table. Mm-hmm. I've created an excuse for a party, but a party needs two individuals. You know, you need, in our case, you need agencies and programs that mm-hmm. are there to be found. But then you need the kids and parents that are looking to be paired with those agencies. And so, the question for any entrepreneur that's looking to tackle this type of concept, and OpenTable, as I said, is a really good example of this, you need to be fully conscious of the fact that that is inherently tricky and inherently valuable, and you need to kind of figure out wisely what battle are you going to fight first. Mm -hmm. In our case, fighting the battle of getting as many agencies and programs into the platform was the easier of the two battles to fight first. Mm -hmm. So we did our homework, we did our research for beta testing in Chicago, we have 1800 programs and that continues to grow by month. And so, in every instance, we have six different buckets that range from mentoring to education to volunteerism, sports, the arts, and health. And later on, we'll add jobs and internships. There's no reason why a kid wouldn't find value. But we didn't really worry about the kids and mm-hmm. the parents first because we needed the programs to reside mm-hmm. wisely. And so, when you're doing a double-sided marketplace, you need to identify, well, what are the two players? It's Mm -hmm. a double-sided, so there's two and they're different. And so now we're moving through marketing channels to worry about the other side, which is how do we find the kids? How do we get their parents? How do we get them involved? And it's free for them Mm -hmm. because in a double-sided marketplace, when you're starting, you have to heavily discount both sides if not, give it both of them for free, mm-hmm. and we're never gonna charge the users to participate. So for us, the revenue streams will be delayed and they'll be driven mainly by our engagement on the, the program agency side. When I talked about it being a uh, double bottom line business is that in our case, And in a lot of other cases as well, I think the true value of a company corporation can only be realized if you're doing both a declarative social good, along with being uh, responsible to owners, shareholders, et cetera, by generating revenue and ultimately profit, and that Mm -hmm. those two should be intractably linked. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we have a partnership with Utah State, and that allows us to speak to this after school phenomenon, like what is actually happening and no one really knows. Mm -hmm. Kids leave school, you kind of don't know what's going on. And so for us, in our case, this double bottom line is being able to solve a declarative social need Mm -hmm. that is quite clearly good for all parties. I and mean, We need to be clear about that. Our focus isn't you know, revenue and profit generation is the number one maxim. There's mm-hmm. kind of a 1A and a 1B. We need to be doing both. But on the flip side, by doing that, you have really involved users. You have really involved programs. Everyone's receiving value. So the revenue we're able to generate is mm-hmm. good revenue. It's not bad revenue. And then they both support one another. And so mm-hmm. that's where you talk about it being a double bottom line. It's kind of like we have a lot of tenants of what is a B Corp. Mm-hmm. which is a for profit that has social good, but also, you know, we're categorically set up as a C Corp because we do need to generate revenue and create profit.
0: There's a lot of businesses that are actually doing this. I'm sure Tom's shoes. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've done much research about those guys. I think it was give one, get one or something like that. They have Correct. a concept. And I think same thing Walgreens did as well with their flu shots and yeah. several other vaccinations. They were doing that same kind of a concept. I mean, how do you as a business, kind of incorporate some sort of a social cost into their organization. And yeah, well for us it's,
1: um, you're kind of going in the area of CSR, right? Mm -hmm. Corporate corporate social responsibility. That's somewhat similar to what you're talking about as well. And for us, the social good is not an add on. Mm -hmm. It's just, part of the DNA, you know, we're doing both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And with Tom's as as an example, maybe they had that thought as well, like, Mm -hmm. it's intractably linked. We can't do one without the other, Mm -hmm. we're going to give these shoes away, and we're not in a lot of case studies in business school have spoken about, you know, how has that worked from a marketing angle, from, Mm -hmm. you know, from a a bottom line angle, from, you know, top line revenue, (laughs) how does that ultimately work? And for me, you know, coming from the nonprofit side, I am, you know, there are strains of caring about social things, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm a socialist, but at the same time there's certain tenets of socialism that I agree with and I think Mm -hmm. we all should look out for other people that there are ways in which you can better yourself and if society as a whole can improve the lives of a lot of people then it ought to do that because it pays back tenfold the other way around once they grow up and they've achieved things. So for us, spotivity is looking to kind of hold true to that thought. And Chicago Training Center for me was just you know a good example of let's get started in this space and let's spend a significant amount of time to learn and know what I'm talking about from one angle, and I'm just carrying that forward. But I think all companies, if they can figure out, and not all industries can do this, but a lot of them can, if they can figure out a really good social angle that, mm-hmm. you know, can't doesn't need to be monetized for it to be of worth to the company, then they ought to do that mm-hmm. because that's going to you know, you know have huge downstream positive ramifications.
0: Obviously now that you're, you're running a for-profit business, what are some of the things that you think you would do differently if you were to actually go start and run a non nonprofit?
1: Well yeah it's kind of tricky right with a nonprofit you're not there to generate a whole lot of profit right <laughs> but trying to figure out you know how you can generate revenue to be self-sustaining is uh, extremely impactful because the problem that a lot of nonprofits will have is that they kind of exist in this weird space where they feel they just ought to exist because they do good. Mm -hmm. And that's not completely incorrect, but it's also not the whole story. And if there's a way in which they can generate, because of the good work they're doing, revenue that allows them to become self-sustainable, then the funders the funding body that's giving the money be it a foundation or angels or whatever I mm-hmm. uh, would be more inclined to do so because they're it's kind of hedging mm-hmm. that money right it's for for institutional investors that give to nonprofits they would be much more inclined to give the same amount and or more money to agencies that realize they don't need that money and it's just a value add and it allows for other more interesting things to happen whereas if you're an agency that's solely dependent on handouts that becomes pretty tenuous because then you're at the mercy of market swings, because if big investors are only gonna give money when times are good, when times Mm -hmm. are bad, you're the first thing they cut, and then you're kind of SOL if you're a nonprofit. And you can hedge against that if you've generated lines of revenue that can keep you sustaining. Mm -hmm. And you find that there's problems with a lot of NGOs running the same problem Mm -hmm. with market swings. They realize, well, man, we can't can't fulfill our overhead needs, and so it becomes problematic. And so uh, I think that if nonprofits figured out a way to run like a business, that would be way beneficial for them. I think too many of them think of themselves in this nice place where they just survive off of a bunch of handouts and some might be pretty substantial handouts, but mm-hmm. those handouts can easily go away and then you're kind of left, well, what do I do now? And yeah. that would be dealt with if they ran like a business.
0: I think Charity Water is a good example of how I think they use donors' money to fund. The administration is, is funded through corporate donations and then the actual passing of, um, you know, I don't know exactly what do you call that, you know about Charity Water? Have you heard of it?
1: Familiar, yeah. Yeah.
0: But I think the, I'm trying to remember the way they, they phrase it. Basically, basically their funding mm-hmm. comes from, like, so let's say if I want to put a, uh, whatever you call it, like the drill, a, uh, what do you call oh, well. it? A yeah, well. Yeah, well in Africa, my $5 goes straight to Africa, but the actual administrative cost, cost of running the operation mm-hmm. comes from corporate donations. So Every dollar goes straight to the place where the money is used, yep. and it's not like eighty cents goes to administration and twenty cents goes to. Uh,
1: yeah, and that's always a tricky thing because I was talking a lot to my development director when I was running a Chicago training center, and the big problem too is that because it's a nonprofit, people always think that the one thing you can skimp on Mm -hmm. is administration Mm -hmm. and that they would be willing to work for far less than they could in the private sector. And though I think that will probably always be true, the range is not nearly what it ought to be, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I do think you know, there's a certain quality of life and, and certain things that you're willing to to change to move from working in the private sector to the nonprofit sector. But the problem is you also get what you pay for, and so from you know a charity perspective, if you're not willing to absorb the cost for good high-end leadership, the leadership you're going to get is going to be suboptimal because you're not paying a, you know, a meaningful salary to get the type of person that you need to actually run the shop well. So that just comes down, it's a little bit of a game of optics, but it's also a game of communication and that obviously comes from leadership and you know, trying to figure out how you can kind of bridge those gaps is going to be extremely needed because again, a general punter on the street who's going to donate to an agency, they quite clearly want to make sure that the majority of that does good. And they won't necessarily think that I need to ensure that we have extraordinarily good leadership in that project Mm -hmm. to ensure everything else works. No, I want it to go to that well, Mm -hmm. but they might be missing a bigger picture and that's a communications and leadership conversation as well that needs to happen so that they can be okay with that dollar or whatever being cut up in a way that they immediately would have think would not be of economical best use, but Mm -hmm. ultimately is a much better long-term play. But that again is, you know, a little bit of a tricky thing to deal with.
0: Makes sense. I know when we were talking earlier, we talked a little bit about how businesses, especially when it comes to acquiring new customers and retaining them, you, yep. gotta, you gotta figure out ways to engage your customer base. I know there's some, Spotivity has some features built into it that actually enable businesses or you, you call them as agencies in your in sure. platform. What are some of the things that business owners should be thinking about to, to increase engagement and yeah, retention? Yeah, so
1: in, in our case, uh, we've looked to gamification as a way to kind of solicit positive feedback loops. Mm-hmm. So for okay. us, I we don't care what kids do. We mm-hmm. want more kids and more activities more of the time, mm-hmm. that happening subsequently more agencies and programs will have more kids in their classes more of the time. And if they're a for-profit agency, that's top line revenue. If they're a non-profit, that just means better long-term engagement. And so what we're looking for the gamification side is that it provides for the user this positive feedback loop of getting engaged. Mm-hmm. And I think that's you know a huge value. And I think companies can find ways that can provide benefits. I mean, I think in the healthcare sector you see this a lot because they want to lower their healthcare premiums. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want people to be healthier so they're not going to the hospital mm-hmm. you know, all that often. And so there's a, a reason for them to say, we will give you points, we'll give you money off. You go and you tell us you're going to the health club, we'll lower your premium, mm-hmm. right? And so they're already in that game uh, because it makes business sense for them. But I mean, who doesn't want to be healthy so it works mm-hmm. on the end user <laughs> part as well? And so that is somewhat of a similar mm-hmm. role. And you know, other agencies, uh, other companies that are looking in different industries can find their own niche that does the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. If you're in the, the entertainment industry, there can be an easy reason that you can think of to create a, kind of a gamification of people on your platform for reasons that make sense. I mean, if you are a streaming service, you can, you're looking for feedback loops, you're looking for surveys filled out, you're looking for them to do interesting things, and you can very well accomplish that so long as you're able to kind of tap into what matters to the user. Mm-hmm. And for us in our case we're dealing with kids 13 to 18. Maybe the 18-year-olds think a little bit less of gamification than maybe the 13-year-olds, but if we focus on those 13-year-olds through gamification, by the time they're 14, 15 or 16, maybe they don't care about the gamification, but they're so involved in the platform it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Right? So that those are things that, you know, agencies or you know other companies need to be thinking about because it doesn't cost anything to come up with a badging system. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come up, it doesn't cost anything to give them shout-outs to create leaderboards, yeah. to give them some amount of social capital mm-hmm. that makes them feel good. It's easy to do. So for us, it's kind of an imperative because why would we not do all the easy things first?
0: Are there any final thoughts that you have? Uh, I mean, obviously, you've built a nonprofit, you're running a for profit business that you're trying to raise capital for. Mm-hmm. Are there any final thoughts you have in terms of life lessons that you've learned or wisdom that you might impart to entrepreneurs yeah, well, aspiring?
1: Th- for me, it's don't, as a leader, be arrogant to think that you know mm-hmm. everything. I'm a non-technical founder, and that has not stopped me from being involved in the technical space. We are building an app that is now on all three platforms. I'm now way more fluent on technology stacks than before. Now I even start to know some of the nomenclature, whereas before I knew none of it. But I'm not going to make a technically focused decision without talking to my technical advisors. And that's an example of you kind of don't know what you don't know. As a leader and as an entrepreneur, I had a very clear vision of what I wanted to achieve. Right? I had the end goal in mind <laughs> and I knew very detailed with what I wanted that end goal to achieve and that hasn't changed at all in you know, the years since I originally had this idea to the last two years when I've been fo- focused solely on on achieving that end goal. But the path to get there has changed all the time. It's almost changed daily because of inputs from areas that I don't know as much about. And I listen to the experts. And my job as a leader is to decide who are the experts I'm going to listen to versus who are the perceived experts that I'm not going to listen to. I have every power to not listen to anyone, but I would be wise you know, to hear what everyone has to say, and if I'm good, I will make more right decisions than wrong. And so going to an incubator was really helpful. I had 70 meetings with mentors in the first three months. And that was just a way for me to either validate my ideas and assumptions and or to change and tweak things that I thought were important. And that whole process allowed me to then position this to investors to say, okay, we think this idea makes sense. And you've done the homework and the questions that we are asking you, you've already dealt with in this whole period of time, and uh, that I would think is true of anyone. I mean, even the smartest person in the world would stand to have a good sounding board and to think that you're the smartest person in the room is inherently problematic. And so you might have the right end result in mind. You can't really be flighty and always change. Um, but being able to listen to people that might know more than you in certain areas is you know extremely invaluable.
0: Sounds good. Appreciate you joining up on the show. Oh, I
1: thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks thank for having you. me.
0: Yeah. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.